1: Hey everyone, Michael Adams here. You're about to hear part one of chapter 30 of the Super League War. Just wanted to let you know at the top we had an audio issue which is noticeable on my side of the conversation for the first 30 minutes or so. It's not unlistenable, but it's not pristine. Uh, The good news is we do have the pristine version, but that's going to take some fiddling around to get that ready. So I thought in the meantime we would put it out as is and... Um, Yeah, hope you enjoy it. If you do want to wait for the pristine version, we're going to fix it up and we'll re-upload, I'd say, you know, over the weekend or early next week. That'll be available. Uh, But that's just to let you know. So uh, enjoy the show. It was Monday, July 8, 1996, and a crowd of 35,000 at the Sydney Football Stadium watched on as Andrew G's incorrectly tapped 20-meter restart handed the Roosters a two-point victory. It marked a triumphant return of Monday Night Football, a concept last seen in 1987. In a season of plummeting attendance figures and waning public interest, the success of Monday Night Football was an anomaly. Yet sandwiched between the nuclear explosion of 1995 and the Great Divide of 1997, it was an anomaly of a season. This is part one of the Optus Cup, the 30th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
0: Fantastic, mates. Next installment of the war, I'm pumped.
1: Yeah, and these ones are always fun, these season recaps we've done. So this is our 1996 season recap, which if you remember the first uh, season of our podcast, it was, you know, 23, 24 chapters before we got to the 1995 season recap. <laughs> it It just goes to show you that there was A whole lot going on in 1995. 1996 was a lot quieter in terms of Super League action and it meant that it was somewhat of a normal, albeit very strange season.
0: Well, we've spoken about before that I don't remember hardly anything about the 1996 season, but I sort of remember this vibe of it just going through the motions like just a dark cloud over the season.
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and you're not alone in not remembering much of it like I consider it somewhat of a lost season like if you look at all the biographies of of league players that were playing at the time so many of them just like completely gloss over the season like they'll Mm -hmm. either like skip it completely or it might you know be a passing reference to a particular game here and there but like it really is this real in-between season that didn't really get much traction in the public eye. Like You had the Forgettable Origin series, no internationals. Even the grand final was you know, a bit of a lacklustre grand final. So I know like quite a few St. George fans that really hold on to this season as kind of a cherished memory. I don't really think of it that fondly. It, it, it was a great effort to make the grand final, as we'll discuss in time. And I guess for Manly fans, having 1996 being the one they won out of those three years... Mm. But I think for the general public, there's a lot less interest in this season than there was in the years either side of it. If you go back to the first chapter in this Super League War, which was our 1994 season recap, that was a a four-episode chapter. The 1995 (laughs) season recap was done in one just because there was so little going on outside of Super League. So there wasn't a lot to talk about otherwise. This season is... There's actually like uh, quite a bit going on outside of Super League. I'm not going to attempt to not talk about Super League in this chapter. It's obviously still going to be a big part of the story. But I think maybe because of the fact that the ARL and, you know, to a lesser extent, the Super League clubs as well, took the path of, you know, just trying to make nice, play happy families and just get through the season.
0: I remember at the time thinking like this sort of just feels back to normal a little bit with this dark cloud over it, but back to normal in the same respect.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably wishful thinking on the part of the league and the fans who didn't turn away. You know, my memory is just like, okay, good. Super League's over. Let's just get back to footy.
0: (laughs) It's over. It's finished with. Yeah. (laughs) Never hear about it again.
1: Uh, So, to start this chapter, I'm just going to do a bit of a, a lightning round of just a few, you know, bits of news and changes that were happening in the game just to maybe paint the picture of rugby league in 1996 and I'm going to start with something not related to rugby league at all it just kind of hit me when I was reading it and it gave me a bit of perspective on a few things so this was in the rugby league week on the 1st of May in a week such as this football doesn't seem to matter much does it the events in Tasmania really drove it home there is a good deal more to life than rugby league despite the turmoil of the past year for most of which it seemed that news of the pending end of the world would have taken second place to the ARL Super League stoush So that event in Tasmania was, of course, the Port Arthur Massacre.
0: Horrific time. I remember it vividly.
1: And just reading that paragraph and remembering Port Arthur, as well as also thinking about the state of the world now, honestly, it made me feel a bit silly. Like, out of all the things you can dedicate a significant portion of your life to, and we've chosen to, you know, (laughs) spend 100 hours, you know, covering a few years of rugby league in the 90s. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, a few incidents in this uh, series have led us to the old cliche, you know, it's only a game, but it is only a game. A very interesting game, mind you. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> I can still remember sitting on the hill with my mates uh, a couple of weeks after Port Arthur. I think it was Newcastle v. Gold Coast, blockbuster occasion. <laughs> and we had the papers, the Sunday papers, and one of the front of the papers, I think it was a telegraph, had a bullet for each of the victims, was the mm. silent front page. And it was... Chilling and um, yeah, it made me sick to the stomach. I still remember that day vividly.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely horrific. Um, so <laughs> maybe it was a mistake to include that right at the top, um, but we, we have. so
0: You included 90 minutes on the um, Hillsborough disaster, so I think, you think you're, in, <laughs> you're fine, mate, you're fine.
1: <laughs> um, but let's get back to the actual football then. And this...
0: Have you got anything on the Challenger space shuttle blowing up?
1: (laughs) Um, No. So let's move I I didn't even include anything on, uh, you know, Bill Clinton winning the election over Bob Dole in 1996. (laughs) So we might stick to football from here. And 1996 did mark the start of a new era, although... Um, what would turn out to be a very short era. So 1995 was the last Winfield Cup. 1996 was the first Optus Cup, which of course gives us the name of this chapter. And I think the significant thing for me is the trophy and the decision to retain the Gladiators, which we've talked about in earlier episodes, but it, it was no sure thing that that was going to happen. So the company that was assigned the task of replacing the trophy actually came up with 30 or 40, 50 designs, actually, um, several of which didn't include provenance summons at all. So we kind of came close to losing that iconic image.
0: I ask you this. If you're trying to promote you know, the history of the game angle, <laughs> why would you be considering having no provenance summons in the trophy?
1: Yeah, uh, but maybe it's easy to say that now. At the time, like that was a 13-year relationship, and yes, it was iconic, But when you're in this time of great change and, you know, you've got the shadow of Super League, I can also see, you know, some marketing genius saying like, no, we need to have a more American trophy or, you know, we need to represent a new era. Like, I'm sure those conversations went on.
0: I actually felt sorry for the ARL. They get this war thrust upon them right at the exact same time the Winfield deal expires and is is illegal now.
1: Yeah, and, and I noticed in your notes you asked the hypothetical of would the ARL have been a stronger position if the Winfield Cup hadn't had to come to an end? Because OP
0: just it didn't sound cool at the time, did it?
1: No, it didn't. And that is one of those things there's a lot of like nostalgia value now about the Winfield Cup. But even at the time I kind of felt that like it kind of sucked. I'm like, oh what do you mean? Like it's the Winfield Cup. Like that was the only rugby league competition. I'd known, and at the time, I didn't realize that it was such a relatively short period of time in the game's history. like to me, the Winfield Cup was rugby league.
0: well for our age group, all we knew was rating goals for the grand finals,
1: yeah, 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 but anyway, I think that was uh not only was it like really smart of them at the time, but it kind of like laid the foundation that any future change to the trophy it's always going to have proven and summons now. Like, I couldn't imagine them ever even thinking about removing it.
0: So hats off to Optus for not bowing to the marketing geniuses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've got some more talk about the results of the Rugby League Week players poll when we actually get to the on-field action. But just right at the start, uh, something I found very interesting, the results of two questions in particular. So one of the questions was, are players overpaid? To which 74% of players polled said no, 26 said yes. Uh, the second question was, Do you think the increase in players' payments will send the clubs broke? To which 74% said yes, 26% said no. <laughs> Pretty hilarious. Is that the most rugby league player mentality result ever?
0: I actually felt proud of them because like, they were putting the game before their personal interest, which would never happen today.
1: But, yeah, it's just so funny that they could answer honestly about that thing but not make the connection to their own salaries.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're definitely thinking about other people. Like, like yeah. <laughs> I think Freddie's getting way too much. I should be getting more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, yeah, so some more uh, interesting things from the players poll will be coming out in part two of this chapter. Uh, I wanted to look at that year's Australian Schoolboys, which is um, pretty decent crop. It's always a mixed bag. Uh, of the team that year, the following players, you know, went on to have substantial NRL careers. So you had Nathan Kalis, Owen Craigie, Ben Galea, Mark McClendon, Todd Payton, Adam Perry, the Tour brothers, uh, Reese Wesser, and then, um, you know, the schoolboy sensation that didn't really go on with it, but Royston Lightning as well. What a name. Pretty fair squad.
0: Very fair. Um well, what blows me away is there was another half the squad which I've never heard of I can't believe you can be the best in Australia as a schoolboy and not even make grade it happens every year
1: I think it just shows you how much more there is to it like you have to remember that these are still boys and not only are their you know physical talents developing at different rates but also like mm. the emotional maturity and you know just those things like motivation and and heart and all those kind of things. Like it's probably easier to, to, you know, physically pick out the best players and say, you know, these players will go on with it, but there's just so much more to making it in, you know, any big sport really.
0: I remember a kid that I went to school with a couple of years older than me and he was like really good. And then he got in a car accident and he sort of hurt his leg and he got into drugs and stuff like that, but he would definitely would have been a first grader. Mm. You could just tell.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 1996 also marked, uh, Significant year in terms of where we're at now, especially in terms of sponsorship and how the game is covered. Because the first bookmaker at a football game was installed at Bruce Stadium during a game during that year. So at that point in time, sports betting was still illegal in New South Wales. So Colin Tidy, uh, the bookmaker's quote at the time was Betting on league is rampant and legal in every other state in Australia. And sports betting is huge all over the world. It's only a matter of time here.
0: I wish it wasn't a matter of time.
1: (laughs) Well, the really interesting thing to me is how against it the league was. So, um, John Quayle was outraged at the decision to have bookmakers at Bruce Stadium. And he even suggested transferring matches to grounds that were under ARL control in future.
0: Well, it's very hypocritical to say you're against that, but you don't mind having them puff on a pack of Winfield Blues. But, I mean, he knows as well as anybody else. If you sign this blood money deal, there's going to be human cost.
1: Well, I don't think it even was about that. I, I think Quayle's view was more about integrity, that a cosy relationship between the league ah. and betting. <laughs> right,
0: right. <laughs> don't worry about the kids. Yeah. Um, we'll ruin their lives. But
1: yeah, And, um, you know, you could say there's been a few examples where, you know, those fears may have played out, but that was also happening before it was legalised as well. So...
0: But the funny thing is, if we go back through all the betting scandals, you know, the John Elias book and all the rest of it, it's much easier to trace uh, a betting plunge when it's official. If it's, if it's yeah, 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 bookies, yeah, for sure. no one's going to know. Yeah. So the integrity was actually helped by this uh, deluge of betting companies.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. But yeah, I didn't see in any of the coverage any talk about the you know, the social cost of gambling. So <laughs>
0: the rugby league's always had a sorry guys, you're on your own approach to uh yeah.
1: <laughs> vices. <laughs> Probably one of the most significant changes to the game that year was the introduction of unlimited interchange.
0: Well, I'm embarrassed to say that I was all for this and gung ho about it, you know, like the NBA, you know, NFL and everything. People can come on and go as they please, keep the game fast. But it really did hurt the game.
1: Yeah, and it led to instant outcries. You know, someone like Wayne Bennett was out in the press a lot saying that the rule was going to take some of the special qualities out of the game. So, you know, it was going to do away with 80 minute players. And there was a big argument that it was taking fatigue out of the game. And now we've gone so far the other way, there seems to be always something to fix. And there's a couple of reasons that the rule was introduced. One that didn't get mentioned, but I wonder if this was part of the push, was the fact that the margin of victory in games was like increasing. Like when we talked about the margin of victory in the 1995 season, which was 17.81, which, you know, there were two outlier seasons in 1920 and 1935, but 1995 was the highest, you know, margin outside of those two seasons. So you had this like really wide margin of victory and, and that was true in 1994 as well, which the margin in that year was 16.65. 1996, that had come down to 15.37. So, you know, over two point two points a game less than it was in 1994. So, I mean, that's significant in itself.
0: And also there were still lots of expansion clubs copying floggings and that, so it would have been yeah. tighter than that.
1: yeah. But the main argument for the rule change came down to health reasons. So it was said that it was going to take away the grey area. So players that had injuries could be given a quick medical check and then allowed back into the game.
0: Quite sensible, really.
1: It is, but it also, it's an attempt to solve a legitimate problem with undue consideration for the flow-on effects. The
0: old uh, mixomatosis, you reckon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: And it may also be very significant in potentially the first time where we heard the saying, you know, rugby league's just turning into touch football.
0: First time I heard that was from the lips of the great Ricky Stewart.
1: Yeah. Although, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Frank Burge was saying it was touch footy in the 40s, (laughs) the way rugby league players are. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, definitely not a fan of the unlimited interchange, and for good reason it's no longer a part of our game. What still is a very big part of our game is the endless drama about player contracts and poaching and you know how do we come up with a system that's fair and how do we avoid the farce of, you know, players signing contracts a year in advance and then, you know, backflipping on those contracts and
0: <laughs> So what you're gonna say is in nineteen ninety six they had a foolproof system which was gonna <laughs> solve it. <laughs>
1: So basically, the madness of 1995 led to this situation where it was like open slather. There were all these early bird negotiations and signings. It became a real sore point with the mid-year signing of Anthony Mundine, you know, being paraded with a Broncos jersey while still an active player at St. George. So this led to a lot of furor between the clubs and the league deciding to, try to do a bit of a crackdown on it. And that crackdown wasn't to bring in a new role, but actually to enforce an existing rule. So there was this clause 26, which was in each player contract that banned a player or his manager from entering into negotiations with another club before the contract is ended. So basically mean, unless he had permission from the club, it wouldn't until the end of the season that a player was allowed to negotiate with other clubs. Player agents in particular came out in force against it, saying it was weighted way too heavily in favour of the clubs. And I think that's definitely true if you're, you know, banning any contract negotiations during the season effectively. I don't know why transfer windows or, you know, free agency periods doesn't work.
0: They had a window and then everyone just yeah, uh, yeah. Just, outside just... the window. <laughs> It's because no one's got any respect for the rules in rugby yeah. league. If you can't trust these um, these mollusk grub agents, who can you trust?
1: Yeah. But the situation, you know, you had the mundane signing and that was coming off the back of the Broncos getting Gordon Talus as well. Mundine, even though he signed with Super League, was supposed to be going to Canterbury. Uh, And, you know, Brisbane, even though there was this agreement with Super League clubs that they would happily, you know, share talent across the Super League because they believed in the concept so much, they somehow ended up with both of those players. (laughs) And even in the ARL clubs, it was seen as a big issue. You had an unnamed executive from one of those have nots being quoted as saying, They've obviously had a close look at the loyalty agreements and seen that the only way they can reduce the size of the competition is to let the dollar bring clubs down. That talk was in the air, you know, for a while, and I don't think it's unfounded. But I also kind of think if you can't keep up, like especially at this time when so much is going on, like clubs have to be able to keep up, you know?
0: It's a tale as old as time in rugby league. Good players want to go to good clubs. Bad clubs have got to pay you significantly over the market value to entice good players
1: yeah and this is something I do sympathize with the have-nots who's coaching New South Wales Phil Gould who's coaching Australia Bob Fulton which clubs are you know commonly known to poach players and get these big signings you know Manly and the Roosters so like that was a legitimate grievance and it was clear that unless they did want to go down the nuclear option of just open slather on signings and, you know, if you can't keep up, you can't be in the league. There is some element of protection needed to keep the competition even.
0: Not enough has been made of the genius stroke of um, making rep coaches not be club coaches. Yeah,
1: yeah. For a number of reasons, but, yeah, that's a key one for me.
0: What's funny is the Terry Fernley debacle in 1985 um, didn't even change it to about Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) But So it was clear something needed to be done. I think they had to try harder than, for the fifth time in the decade, trying to replace the salary cap with a points system.
0: <laughs> Someone was just absolutely hell-bent on the points system. I oh,
1: know. I love this quote uh, about it. This was a, a mascot column in the Herald. In confirming a new Premiership Council would take over the running of the competition, New South Wales Rugby League directors said a proposal to introduce a points cap had been taken off the scrap heap. It's, it's <laughs> perpetually being put on and taken off the scrap heap.
0: Well, I'm not an expert on ideas, but usually I'd go to the fresh pile, not the scrap heap <laughs> for the new ideas.
1: Uh, if it had been introduced, it would have potentially resulted in a situation where Parramatta and the Roosters were banned from making any new signings for the 1997 season.
0: How funny is the fact that Parramatta was a powerhouse? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And for a number of reasons, a point system isn't going to work, but it's just always going to be too complicated. Like, you know, there was one report talking about one of the issues being that, you know, whether a Fijian, you know, Papua New Guinean or even a New Zealand test player is worth as many points as an Australian test player. Like all these considerations, how do you actually make an equitable system like it's just got to be cash
0: <laughs> well you can't that's why that's what never worked
1: <laughs> but this situation uh came to the boil later in the year and of course all of this effectively became moot when super league won the appeal and were allowed to start their competition in 1997 so a lot of what we're talking about here you know nothing really came of it but an interesting thing for me is that all the talk going on about poaching and you know whether this point system could work and all those other things that were tied into it led to a meeting between the league and the clubs in late august this was the first meeting that the super league clubs had attended (laughs) so um when all this was going on Shane Richardson at the Sharks uh, made a recommendation that the eight rebel clubs resume playing an active role in running the competition. So it took them until August to, to come to that <laughs> decision. Um, Shane Edwards at the Broncos said, we don't know what competition we're going to be in next year, but if it's the ARL, we would like to have an input. And at the moment, we have none. Which, I've got to point out, was entirely of the Broncos and the other Super League clubs <laughs> choosing. But now I want to get into the public, and this is probably the most Super League-heavy portion of this chapter. And I think an Ian Head's column pretty neatly sums up the mood, so I'm just going to read this out. The question of the day as to who should steer the ship into the future the ARL or Super League, seems almost superfluous in a deeply wearied game. A more pertinent question is, will there be a future? And I think at the time, this was a real fear. Everyone was just so over the war. Like, I feel like 1995 was all about anger. 1996 was pure apathy.
0: The game had never been lower.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really was tough. And a lot of the people involved in all that anger were realising the toll it had taken on the game. So Gary Burns at Channel 9 even talked about you know, the famous ambush on the footy show, saying, John Rebo got more or less gang attacked because passions were running high. We apologise to John over that, and we've stayed away from the topic.
0: I don't remember staying away from the topic.
1: I think they did play more of a straight bat as the war went on. You know, definitely by 1996, it was more about what was happening on the field. And there, there wasn't as much of the vitriol about Super League.
0: I suppose they had the uh, anti-ads to keep them busy, so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it was funny, like, we've talked about it in previous chapters covering 1996. The lengths News Limited went to to destabilise the competition after losing the first court case. It was like this real scorched earth policy that didn't do anything to endear the public to the super league clubs at a time that the game was trying to get back together, and also like it's just kind of like a terrible strategy, like let's make the public hate the sport we've just spent hundreds of million dollars yeah. in buying up
0: the angle was all wrong. it was a double smear campaign,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and and that's why I think the overriding sentiment of nineteen ninety six was a plague on both their houses, you know I think the general sentiment was just over it. And that's what, where you see that apathy like really coming into effect. So this period also saw some of the greats of the game coming out and talking about everything that was happening in rugby league at the time. One of those was Kevin Humphreys, who had been keeping it pretty low-key since the early 80s when he left the league. It was reported in, in the Sun-Herald that he was breaking a 13-year silence to discuss Super League. Some of the interesting things that I talk about this interview was the fact that he mentioned that he had that 1994 document that was floating around, so he was privy to what was going on at a pretty early point. He had this to say about the idea of recrimination. Arco and I differ strongly on the question of recriminations. Over the years, there have been people who've been punished and penalised for bringing the game into disrepute. Well, in my view, the people who have taken the action they have should never be part of the game again.
0: I mean, the audacity of this guy to be talking about actions taking and being part of the game...
1: (laughs) If I was Kevin Humphries, I'd probably stay away from a sentence like, over the years, there have been people who have been punished and penalized for bringing the game into disrepute. (laughs) But he did address what happened there in the interview as well. He said, I said the night I retired, the game had a great opportunity. I said, whatever has been wrong, blame me for it. Probably I've been dirty on that ever since because certain people took that literally and blame me for things that I never did.
0: You thought there was going to be no more rugby league comment than the players poll. That's that's it. That takes the cake.
1: I told them to blame me for everything, and then they started blaming me for everything. <laughs> Just uh, when I was looking at that Kevin Humphreys um, statement, it made me think of it, another couple of issues with the past that were happening at that time. So one of them was a report that East great Jack Beaton, who was a player in the 30s, he died during the year and the family were told that there'd be a tribute to him at the game. Um, But in actual fact, there was nothing like, you know, no moment of silence, black armband, not even a passing mention to them. And I think that sucks. And it's something the league was really bad at.
0: Yeah, that's awful. Right? And the league was terrible at that for years. They've rectified it in recent years, thank God. Yeah. But... It's not really to do with anything other than the incompetence of that club, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, that was on the club to do better. But I think it was a general sentiment. Like, something really formative in my mind was, I don't know if it was 95 or 96. It was around that time that I read uh, Larry Ryder's Never Before, Never Again. And just seeing how bitter the old dragons were about how they were treated by the club and maybe to a lesser extent the game, like, there was just such this like deep seated resentment that they weren't you know being recognized they weren't being looked after and however valid that is it was a feeling that was quite common to that generation of players like Noel Kelly's book came out that year and there was a launch party at the SCG where you had all you know champion players of the past in attendance but not one current day player you know from West or anywhere else there at the launch and I think this generation really like did take that sort of thing personally.
0: Well, so they should. It always surprised me that learning about this, I always thought that as a game, the oldies were respected for the path they've laid, but they weren't. I mean, Bob McCarthy was organising the um, kangaroos get together.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it goes back to how genuine is it? Like, how much is it they actually were being ignored and not recognised? And how much is you know some kind of sense of entitlement or you know
0: look i take this approach with it they're guys that can really sniff out a personal slight out mm. of not much so what you do is you show them overly effusive praise yeah. for their efforts in the game and then and that's all covered yeah they're happy the fans are happy
1: yeah and and i mean really you can't be overly effusive because you know the game is built on the backs of these men and the generation before them So I think it is something the league's better at, but um, it took a while to get there.
0: Well, you can't be giving families the heads up that we're going to honour your your loved one and then not do it. Yeah. That's just insane.
1: Yeah, that's horrible. But let's turn to a more in-depth look at where the public was at in 1996. So, you know, we're talking ratings and crowds. uh, And surprisingly, like the TV ratings to some extent held firm. So, there's one major exception to that, which we're going to cover at the back end of this episode. But even though ratings were down, they were kind of down across the board. And there was no real loss of market share or not a significant loss of market share to other sports.
0: Well, I mean, there wasn't much choice. Uh, That's what saved the rugby league, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You've got Uncle Toby's Iron Man.
1: (laughs) But while the TV ratings were kind of okay, the crowds were. I don't remember it being this bad. Like, it's just staggering how poor the crowds were. So you had two clubs of the 20 actually increase their crowd figures from 1995. Amazing. So that was the Roosters who almost doubled their 1995 figures. Fairweathers, is... come back. <laughs> it is Fairweathers, yeah. It was their first decent season in a while. But also, significantly, it's Monday Night Football, which... You know, we'll cover it at the back end of this episode. But that gave their overall crowds a bump. The other crowd to improve their figures was the Gold Coast. So, uh, admirable job by the Gold Coast.
0: Thank the jerseys, mate.
1: <laughs> Less admirable is the fact that the crowds rose from just under 7,000 to just over 7,000.
0: <laughs> well, who in their right mind would <laughs> <laughs> The most amazing drop for me is the Crushers. Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, so they they dropped from twenty one thousand to thirteen thousand. Think about that, but I mean, even the Broncos fell from thirty five to twenty three. So it was they were just under thirty eight thousand in nineteen ninety four. Uh, in two years, they dropped to you know under twenty four thousand. I, I should note I've I've got it wrong. The Eels and Dragons also had um, you know minor increases from their nineteen ninety five figures. Um, but across the board, it was it was just horrible. So, three clubs—the Tigers, Rabbitohs, and Panthers—averaged under six thousand for the year, approaching hobby. The Magpies averaged under seven thousand. The Bulldogs, Steelers, and Gold Coast all uh, averaged under eight thousand, and the Western Reds were just over eight thousand. So, um, yeah, it, it really was horrible.
0: That's unacceptable.
1: Yeah. Or well, well, how's this? Even worse. There were 23 games in the season where the crowd was under 5,000. Souths had seven games under 5,000. They broke 9,000 only once. Those seven games under 5,000 included 3,683 against Newcastle, 3,107 against the Crushers, 3,011 against the Broncos,
0: well, the South fans were saving up their energy for their 100,000 in the March. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't attend the games.
1: But it wasn't just South. So the Tigers had six games under 5,000. The Panthers had five. Gold Coast, two. Magpies, Steelers, and Cronulla also having a game under 5,000. Terrible. But it, it's interesting that the Roosters and Eels did both improve their crowd figures on the back of you know, new signings and the the promise of a good season. Just in terms of buying the comp talk, it seems nobody cares when it's their own team doing it. (laughs) But if the league wasn't losing too much market share in terms of ratings, they certainly were in terms of crowds and we're seeing the other sports really come into play for the first time with a drift towards other codes. So it was, there was one Olympic soccer qualifier during the year that drew 25,000. So that that's not like a World Cup qualifier, but like Olympic soccer qualifier, that got 25,000. And you wonder what would have happened if soccer had its shit together then? You know, if there was like a, you know, A-league type competition, if they were making regular World Cup appearances then, like would they have got an AFL type boost in Sydney or even of Stolen that AFL boost. So it led to a lot of articles in the press about what was going on, and there'd always be like a rugby league crowd. You know, th- there was one that mentioned Penrith South getting 4,000, while New South Wales Queensland Super 12 match got 25,000. It was always like a comparison between a rugby league crowd and a much bigger union AFL or soccer crowd. And it wasn't just Sydney, it was happening in Brisbane as well. One article in the Rugby League Week was talking about the fact that the Crushers could only get 12000 uh, for, for a match against the Eels and went on to say, Next door at Ballymore, 15,000 watched the Reds' Northern Transvaal clash. The next night, both the Bears and Strikers played at home, while down the road at the Gold Coast, both the Indy and the Surf life-saving titles bit deeply into the potential league crowd. I I think if you're using the NSL and Ironman (laughs) as an excuse, like you've got problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that rivalry of the Reds and Northern Transvaal, how's that going today?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got some more talk about that rivalry and that competition a bit later in this episode. Something that I found really interesting in light of all this coverage and this malaise about what was happening was uh, a Roy Masters article where he said, one rugby league chief executive blames the Sydney media for our comparatively low crowds. He says we talk our game down, reporting injuries, player demotions, referee debacles, coach sackings, and administrative blunders. Like, I, I wonder if this era was the start of that. Like, like now, now talking the game down is, is just... What rugby league journalists do
0: yeah, I mean I think it was before this wasn't it, it was since 1908 yeah <laughs> but the people get the newspapers they deserve, right, right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but it did leave to a, a lot of talk of what could we do and and, and what was wrong and, and Michael Cowley uh, maybe hit the nail on the head. What has happened to the game? The division caused by the Super League fiasco, the anger of fans at the greed of players, nope, none of the above. It's the Tina factor. After several seasons of success with Tina Turner, the game entered a Tina-free era in 1996 and the fans have disappeared. The fans must surely begin a bring back Tina campaign.
0: I'm so sick of Tina Turner.
1: So we we didn't <laughs> we didn't even get through one season of footy without the 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 first bring back Tina campaign so
0: it's like the song wonderwall how much i love it but how much i'm sick of it you know like <laughs> i'd like to have a um alternate universe where she never got involved with the game see so where the game would be at
1: <laughs> see i i like i really think that maybe not to the same extent but like i can easily see them having similar success with a different campaign cuz I've said it before, like I think that some of the campaigns they had in the 80s like were really good, like pre-Tina, like the boys are back in town and Warhorse, and and um, do you remember they had Friday on my mind for like Friday Night Football? Yeah, so cool. So like I, I think they were on the right track with that anyway.
0: Yeah, well, you got, you got the Hoodoo Gurus one later, which was just as good as Tina but didn't get the same recognition because yeah. it wasn't yeah, Tina. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I'll put it on the record. I don't think it was the Tina factor. That was the the big issue. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine writing that. Um There were in in the midst of all this, there were some positive signs. So the Cowboys, despite being you know bottom of the table all year, they were like regularly getting twenty thousand plus. Two of those bottom of the table clashes against Penrith and South, they got twenty five and twenty seven thousand for. Amazing. There was a record crowd at the SFS for origin and maybe most impressive at all, a pre-season final in the local Melbourne comp between St. Kilda and Morabin drew 1,500 people.
0: <laughs> That's insane. Go Moorabbin.
1: But of course, th- these were just you know some kind of nice things to happen in a pretty bad year all round. And we've talked about the, the Swans before and their rise coming in this era. And this became a real problem.
0: Well, I mean, as you said, we've talked about it before, but do you think without the Super League War, the Swans get such a boost?
1: It, it's a hard one to answer. Like, I, I think they would have got a boost, but nowhere near to the same extent. Like, I, I think they... Maybe it would have they would have been more like the A-League now, where it was like a kind of, like, cool hipster thing to be into it, but it wasn't, like, a, a kind of huge thing on, on the Sydney sporting scene, you know? It was still, like, a fairly niche portion of the Sydney sports market
0: well making the grand final would have yeah would have given them a big big shot in the arm but I think the fair weather types that want to be on the next cool thing if rugby league wasn't such a uh a dirty word at that time they might have stuck with it
1: well actually one really interesting thing is the results of a poll in the Sydney Morning Herald which was just asking people what sports they were into so it, it wasn't necessarily pitting rugby league against AFL it's like are you interested in AFL do you watch it on TV all those sorts of questions and the results of this poll showed that more people in New South Wales in 1996 were interested in Aussie rules than rugby union
0: that's, that's surprising
1: and it's funny because I, I think the argument now which you know friend of the show Mike me Wood has made this argument and I think there's a lot of validity to it when you look at what's happening with you know GPS, school sport, and and where the Swans demographic is, that AFL's really taking a chunk out of the, the union market more than it is rugby league.
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, um, there's a higher proportion of moleskins at the SCG than there have ever been.
1: Yeah. And despite Malcolm Knox having an article just about every year saying, you know, this is the year that the Swans... Uh, you know have cemented themselves on the landscape and are are overtaking rugby union it's like no that that ship sail mate you know like that that's (laughs) that that was a while ago but yeah but really interesting that it was as early as 1996 that you were seeing that you know take effect That, that it probably would have been lessened by the the fact that super 12 took off the wallabies were really strong so it was probably like not a you know straight linear path but yeah, I, I was surprised to see that happen so early.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, it wasn't until about 2003 that people, like, the majority realised the, the, the hoax that Rugby Union is. Like, it was still considered like, you know, it was like League and Union, There's kind of the same game, they're on the same footing. It wasn't until the early, early to mid-2000s where everyone just went, hang on, we're being lied to. <laughs>
1: But the other interesting thing of that poll was the way it was reported. It was, um, you know, it said more people are interested in Aussie rules than union and rules is fast closing on league in public interest. And, and I feel this line has, has held true for the past 25 years. Every year there's stories about Aussie rules closing the gap, but the gap never seems to get closed and it always seems to stay at about the same distance.
0: Well, the gap is um, the gap is made up of fair weather people, like people that love rugby league, the heartlands, working mm. class people. It's part of their their life, you know. For for, for the AFL bandwagon people, and they, they have their own proper fans as well. I'm not saying that, but the bandwagon people, it's just a laugh, you know, something to do every uh, every every four weeks at the SCG, get the scarf out. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I do know quite a lot of genuine Aussie Rules fans, and there there's a lot of them. So, you know, the Swans average thirty two thousand and and you know they've held that for for a long time. But it's more that the kind of the corporate types who traded in their wallabies scarves for a Swan scarf in, in two thousand and six and you know, and haven't looked back. But it's funny that the AFL entered nineteen ninety six in somewhat of a similar position to the arl like you know not in the sense of a destabilizing civil war but you know there was a sense of too many melbourne clubs clubs going broke they even had their own version of the bradley report which researched the league and came to the conclusion that melbourne couldn't sustain 10 you know melbourne teams in a national competition so there were a lot of (laughs) mergers proposed but
0: I mean, from England to Victoria to, to Phillip Street, the amount of reports that could have been done <laughs> in five seconds. Too many Sydney clubs, too many Melbourne clubs, can't have people dying at soccer matches. All right. <laughs> Who yeah. shouts it?
1: All right. Con- consider it tabled. We'll revisit the situation in 15 years. <laughs> and so, yeah, so there were a number of mergers proposed. In the end, it was only the, the Fitzroy Lions merging with the Brisbane Bears that, you know, came into effect. And that went on to, you know, have a significant impact on the sporting scene in Brisbane as well, with with the Lions obviously going on to win those three premierships in the early 2000s and, you know, make somewhat of a dent rugby league's domin- dominance in Brisbane as well. But whatever was happening in AFL, it was to the detriment of rugby league. So the Swans taking off at a time when people were disillusioned with rugby league, Gave them a real boost, and they were getting sellouts at the SCG for Swans matches. Which now we've kind of grown accustomed to it. It's it just it is what it is. But at the time, it it, it was unheard of.
0: It was massive. Well, I mean, I had blokes from my school getting the train mm. down to go to Swans matches, and it made me it made me sick at the time.
1: <laughs> and you know, it's it's a credit to them, really. Like the Swans are obviously a well run organisation to. You know, have pretty like sustained that following, and have had like you know a pretty consistent like record of success in the two decades since.
0: I mean, they they had a a big gap opened up, and they ran straight through it and kept running. Full credit to them.
1: (laughs) Mm. Uh, Another sport which ran through a gap and then tripped over its own feet and. <laughs> and fell into a hole in the ground uh, was Rugby Union. So let, let's turn our attention to uh, uh, the, the lesser code. And it, it's quite ironic that the Super 12 kicked off in Australia on the same day that Super League was scheduled to begin.
0: They were not even an equal rival. They were like above us at some points with the Wallabies, and this Super 12 that was going gangbusters, that had three different continents, it was exciting when they, when they dropped it.
1: And basically, the court loss in February meant that Rugby Union, through Super Rugby, had the first chance to put the Super League vision into action. And the early indicators were that it was going to be a resounding success.
0: Until people said, hang on, that Gilbert, that keeps going into the stands. What's going on? (laughs) It's bizarre.
1: Jeff Wells in the Sun Herald uh, sums it up well. The concept was smart. It was the only one to turn rugby league into a streamlined, big occasion sport with an international future instead of a cumbersome, small-minded anachronism. That message has only been hammered home even harder by the success of Super 12. And it was pretty instant. They were getting twenty thousand crowds in Sydney and Canberra. Very troublingly, the Raiders lost the milk sponsorship to the Brumbies. That
0: was an absolute disgrace from Canberra Milk, and then now they're back on being all like hipster and cool. They need to pay for that still. <laughs> <laughs> Judas,
1: it's fun- like Canberra's a funny city for sport A eh? because there's so many like people who are you know from Victoria or you know public servants from other places that. You really do need a successful team to keep the crowds in and and keep the interests at a high. Like, it's been great, you know, for the Raiders for the last few years, but for a long period in the 2000s, it was like, it it was a bit of a dicey proposition.
0: There's so much infiltration of AFL down there. It's not funny. Yeah. yeah. Country union types. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it really sucks as a sporting landscape.
1: Yeah. And it, and it's kind of always been like that. Like, you know, my grandfather grew up in, you know, Queen in the thirties. And he was saying that like AFL was massive there back then, because there were so many people who moved to Canberra from Victoria.
0: Well, I, I remember going to visit a um, primary school friend. He lived in Toronto and he moved to Queen or somewhere like that. And I, I was about 11 or something. Went down to visit them when I had to kick the footy and it was an AFL ball and there's four posts up. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck's going on here? So yeah, it's a, it's an open city.
1: Yeah, but uh, losing milk was only one of rugby league's problems in this area in terms of rugby union. And as I said, it was Super Rugby was viewed as a winning concept. Bruce Elder in the Herald called it an unambiguous triumph, and even Paul Morgan, and and obviously you know he's kind of pushing the the Super League barrel barrel on, on this. But he said that people aren't interested in South versus East and Balmain versus Penrith type of stuff. They're interested in the very best type of entertainment that could be served up. Super 12 showed this. It showed people want entertainment at the highest level.
0: I agree with that 100%. So after they watched the rugby union, they went, this isn't entertainment. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's funny because the concept behind Super Rugby, which was very similar to the Super League vision, it is an idea that essentially went untested in Rugby League. So the Super League that we got and the reunification of the game after... It was much different and less ambitious than what was originally proposed.
0: Yeah, I mean, we all we got is a couple of Sydney teams taken out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that <was it>. yeah. <laughs> After all that, a billion dollars uh, wasted and couple of a couple of mergers. Mm. Maybe they should have given them five hundred million each to merge yeah. instead.
1: <laughs> but probably one of the things that that maybe helped to save us was the situation with free to air TV and Super Rugby. So John O'Neill, who just Taken up the position as the you know the boss of the A.R.U., he made an application to have union added to the anti-siphoning list, which you know would mean that by by law there had to be a free-to-air option for uh, the competition, and that was rejected. And that that led to Jeff Jeff Vial, who was the boss of Channel Seven Sports, saying it doesn't look like we'll be airing Super Twelve rugby. Last year we put together a Super Twelve package on Sundays, but that was done out of good faith. We did that to help the ARU out. We won't be having the package next year. I think like that's a massive thing. Like we, we saw what happened with the NBL. You know, like If you take yourself off free-to-air TV, yeah, especially in that era, it makes things much more difficult.
0: They buried themselves, the NBL.
1: And Queensland Rugby Union even said that they lost a $700,000 team sponsorship because Super 12 wasn't going to be shown on free-to-air.
0: But you've got all these business people involved in Union. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work that out. Mm. so it would have been worth just to to pay a um, free-to-wear channel to take your games
1: (laughs) yeah 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 i know yeah i I think and and we have seen some sports do that but you're kind of like you've got to do it if you want to really make your your presence on the scene they had to do something like that to keep themselves front and center
0: i mean we're we're talking three decades ago we're um, we're not talking the streaming era this is like when 90 percent of the people are Only had free to (laughs) Mm. air.
1: But if that was a weak spot, it was one of the few that was being reported during the year, like where it was really an existential thing. Like this, this wasn't helped by what was happening in England with rugby union going professional there, siphoning players away from rugby league and, and really negatively impacting the game.
0: Well, and really remember the feeling of um, like a a despairing feeling when Jason Robertson signed Mm. with union and, I love Jason Robertson and Super 12's going gangbusters The Swans are packing them out They made the grand final And then Super Rugby League's at the all-time low I, I remember thinking, what's going to happen yeah, in the future? Yeah. And yet yet again, the strength of the game To come back mm-hmm. like a phoenix
1: I mentioned John O'Neill before And he he was such a strong administrator Like, yeah. I couldn't even tell you who was running rugby union you know, Now is Raylan Castle still involved? I'm not sure but like he was just everywhere, and he was just pushing the game so hard
0: that um, that '99 World Cup era, they were uh, they were on top of the mountain.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you can see the seeds of that in a statement like this. O'Neill said, "If Australian Rugby Union has ever been given an opportunity to make up ground on rugby league, now's the time. Like any competitive market, you always take advantage of a competitor in trouble, which was a, a, a masterstroke. It might have been an obvious move, but you needed the administrative ability to capitalise on that. And O'Neill definitely had that. And
0: Well, but is he the same administrator that didn't get them on free to air?
1: That was a misstep, but he did try to get it on the anti-siphoning list. But yeah, maybe it could have been a, you know, giving up the rights for free. Although maybe like that, you know, part of the the new Fox deal meant that that wasn't an option. So, you know, perhaps his hands were tied. No doubt. But besides that, there was also the, the view that players could defect to rugby union and this became a, a real strategy of the union in the years ahead we saw some early examples of that in 1996 where it was being talked about in articles like this this was in the rugby league week rugby union has drawn up a hit list of Australia's top 30 rugby league players and the newly professional code is believed to be ready to pounce they went on to be uh you, you know list you know some of the key targets and there was a lot of talk, you know, John Fordham, who was managing the Johns brothers, said that he was considering having a clause inserted into their contracts, allowing them to play rugby union in England. And then you got the first pushback from union types over whether the league guys would actually cut it. You know, the, the usual suspects like David Campese coming out and saying that they wouldn't make it in rugby union. But basically the reason it didn't happen straight away was that there wasn't, much money left you know because they'd already signed up all the players and they'd spent all the the broadcast money on you know establishing everything so that is probably the, the main reason why it didn't happen straight away it took them a few years to really go down that path
0: uh, on the plus side this super league war actually inflated the the um, contract prices out of their range which was a,
1: a yeah, positive Yeah, and, time. and you could see once once that fell away and, and, you know, once the game got back together and had to think about salary caps again, that's when you started seeing all the players go.
0: Well, But they had to pay top dollar for them. So, and, 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 yeah. and, it, and it, d- it didn't help them in the long run.
1: No, no, exactly. Like, it, it was basically a failed strategy, really. Like, you know, Rugby Union didn't need Wendell Saylor. It was more about the destabilizing effect that that would have on Rugby League. And, mm. you know, in the, in the long run, so far... Um, I think we've come out ahead, but you know, I I, I don't want to Joe the early crow on that, (laughs) you know, Um, but so that led to the, some talk about the strength of the concept. We've talked about all, all the good about super rugby and, and the, you know, the super league vision in action, but there were also some limitations too. So, so Roy Masters called it a halfway house between a national and an international competition. and, I think in that first year, like yes, it's it's really exciting, but at the same time, like you know, they'll pack out for the Waratahs versus the Reds, but when it comes to you know New South Wales versus Transvaal, like I remember when Super League started, <laughs>
0: Northern or Southern.
1: I, I remember when Super Rugby started, I was like, Transvaal, what's that?
0: You know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, let me ask you this: if South Africans were more likable as a a (laughs) nation would it have taken off a bit bit better
1: i I think there's something to that but i I think one of the the smartest things super Rugby did was to de-emphasize geographic regions in favor of the you know the animal mascots like within a couple of years it was it was all about the crusaders and the bulls like i couldn't tell you where the bulls are from i know they're a south african team but like I don't know what region they represent. You know, it, it's with the Super Twelve. It so quickly became about those brands, and and I think that worked so well for them.
0: But also, they had cool animals for the overseas teams. Then they had the Reds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the worst, the worst ever. And then the Waratahs, mm. the pontiest name <laughs> of all time.
1: <laughs> but so, so I think you are seeing a, a loss of. I I really hate the word tribalism. I I, I try not to use it, but. What does that, you know, what does New South Wales playing Transvaal mean to the average punter?
0: Well, I can tell you what it meant to me as a, as a teenager when when the Waratahs were big, and then they were signing Queensland players, Jason Little or someone, or I can't remember who they signed now, but I was thinking like because I was used to state of origin where mm. people believed in the state, and this was just like a club team signing players from Queensland. I like sucks you know like
1: especially when the jerseys are exactly the same so like it it just seems like it it's like it kind of so
0: i don't know how you get behind that you know as a a tribe as it were but uh, as a hypothetical how do you think it would have worked if the super 12s was twit was treated like a champions league in soccer and that we had a proper domestic australian competition in rugby union and then the winner goes on to that champions league super 12 format Make it a super yeah, six, yeah. I mean, I guess
1: like they've never tried it to that extent, but they've certainly tried like with the national rugby championship or whatever it is. They've tried various attempts at like having a stronger club scene, and it just seems to have have not worked. So I don't know. You've
0: got to feel sorry for them, really, because imagine trying to run a sport where all, all your best athletes are playing for your competition. It's like yeah, yeah. It's pushing a a rock up a giant Sisyphean hill.
1: But yeah, so I think for for that reason, and for uh, I genuinely don't want to do this to to bag out rugby union. Okay, I, I know we do that a lot, but <laughs> like I don't like the game. Like I don't like the, the way it's played. Like it, it's not entertaining to me. I, I don't enjoy it as a spectacle, and that seems to be a pretty common assessment among much of the populace. So I think just the the way rugby union is as a game it it kind of has a limited appeal in australia and i don't know despite the highs of super 12 and the wallabies i don't know if long term they were ever going to be able to overcome that
0: you don't get any higher than what they were in 99 2000 so if that was the highest they got and, and they're at where they're at now a couple of decades later
1: yeah and and just last thing on rugby union, uh, I was going to leave this out completely, but I I couldn't miss the opportunity to not mention the fact that this was probably the closest we ever got to a hybrid game with like a, a lot <laughs> a lot of hybrid talk throughout 1996. How close was it? Well, like there, there was actually like a, a a Reds versus Broncos clash that was in the planning for the end of the year and I don't know exactly what happened. I think it was probably the the Super League appeal that probably stymied it. Um, and and you got to think also there's some scheduling issues there. The the way that the Super Twelve and Wallaby seasons runs with the you know the rugby league season it would have been difficult logistically. But regardless, like Paul Morgan was so keen on the hybrid game. Like any opportunity he got, he talked up hybrid.
0: All right. Now, I don't want to cost aspersions on your research, mate. You're a genius. But hasn't every hybrid game had a game in the planning?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. I, I I just think that some of the statements coming from Paul Morgan in particular, such as this, I think rugby union is ready to rationalize its rules. I think league is too. So I think there will be a merger. If the merger doesn't take place, and if league doesn't move into the international Arena, I think league will be taken over by union. Well,
0: rugby league was at the the most susceptible to rationalise its rules. Yeah. I feel at that low point, but the union was flying high. If both were at that low point and it was AFL kicking our balls in, maybe there would have been a chance. But not when rugby union is going so yeah. well. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It it would have been a capitulation by rugby league. So you know we can be thankful that didn't happen. But basically union was starting to get the upper hand like in a big way in 1996 and and that that's probably entirely too much rugby union talk for for this episode so we might move on to the TV situation and and have a have a look into what was happening in the reason that we're doing this series right now so <laughs> in the 17 months since pay TV was introduced by May 1996, 230,000 homes had signed up for pay TV.
0: It's so few people.
1: And like the rollout was slow, so only 40% of Brisbane were able to get Optus during the 1996 season. There, there were reports of public reticence because they wanted to... They wanted to know who was going to win. One article likened it to a VHS beta problem. (laughs) Nobody wanted to sign up, only to find down the track that they'd signed up to the pay TV version of the beta recorder.
0: Well, it would be a a huge inconvenience (laughs) to have to call up the provider and cancel your account and call a new one up and sign up. But I get where they're coming from.
1: But yeah, this was telling to me. So uh, in April 1996, it was reported that uh, some Bulldogs fans wanted to watch their game against the Western Reds, which was on Optus. Uh, None of them had Optus, so they thought they would try to find a pub that had it. And it ended up being that the only place in Sydney that had Optus was Manly Leagues Club. (laughs) What coverage. (laughs) And and I I think that was probably uh, an exaggeration. It was reported by Sherlock in the Rugby League week. I'm sure... I'm assuming they're in Belmore or similar. I'm sure they could have found somewhere closer to home than Brookvale. Uh, but regardless, it shows you that it was still like a, a very primitive landscape for pay TV. And I want you to keep that word primitive in the front of your mind when I talk about the homes that did have access to Optus Vision. So it was reported in July that Optus's Sunday package was a football extravaganza. So uh, in the Rugby League week, it said, the show is a five-hour rugby league extravaganza featuring exclusive delayed telecasts of a minimum of two Sunday Optus Cup fixtures. Where possible, a third delayed telecast will also be included in the action packs program.
0: <laughs> Drop everything, sign up for Optus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every game will be highlighted in one of the three programs and at least seven full games are aired each week, with four being live.
0: Well, that's not bad for the year.
1: So, yeah, so that was the state of live football uh, on TV in 1996. You could get a maximum of four games. The free-to-air situation was made worse by the fact that the ABC dropped its Saturday afternoon coverage, so you no longer had that live game on the Saturday afternoon.
0: Well That was a part of all our childhoods.
1: Yeah, yeah. And basically, there were it, it was just becoming too expensive for the ABC, so they decided to replace their Saturday afternoon coverage with uh, state Aussie rules leagues and <laughs> the Shoot Shield in New South Wales.
0: I don't know who. I mean, there's no point starting me on the the ABC uh, rant, but <laughs> who there is trying to push the Shoot Shield since 1990? Christ knows when no one wants it
1: yeah I think it just comes comes down to the cost so David Morrow who was calling those Saturday afternoon games he said at the time that there was always it was always an awkward fit between the ABC and covering rugby league his exact quote was it was always pretty fragile year to year
0: I mean it was cool because it was like a different set of commentators and you had Warren Bowling you had Walker, it was cool and you had no yeah. ads which was amazing but it looked like it was filmed on like a 1991 <laughs> handheld camcorder. Like the worst production you've ever seen. Yeah, so it had its own style, which was cool. Uh, but it was just it's something different. It broke up the other coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So seeing seeing it go was, was awful. But um, to replace it with the uh, shoot shield.
1: What was even worse was what they tried to do with their radio coverage. Like it was a real possibility that they were going to drop radio coverage of rugby league. One report talked about a, a outraged uh, rugby league fan in Warren in Western New South Wales saying they're trying to ram the bloody swans down our throats.
0: <laughs> well, they've taken the ramming the throat methodology to <laughs> n- new levels since, since, that, since that time. But uh, yeah, man, just thinking about those days, I remember the Brett Mullins scoring five against Cronulla on ABC. Mm. Television, it was beautiful.
1: And the thing about it is it's easy for us in, or well, me in, in Sydney to just go, well, well, that that's all right. Like, you know, Channel 9 has, has it on TV. I can listen to, you know, 2UE or 2GB or whatever to, to get the radio coverage. But for people in the bush, especially at that time, like that wasn't the case. Like losing the ABC for some people meant losing access to, to rugby league on TV.
0: Yeah, back then it meant something.
1: Yeah. And on the radio as well. So Greg Groudon who, you know, famously a, a, a union man and and, you know, not, not a leggy, on the potential decision for the ABC to drop rugby league coverage on the radio, he said, has the ABC totally lost the plot? Those of us who spent <laughs> their formative years driving a tractor around a paddock, retaining our sanity only by listening to the ABC radio sports coverage on a Saturday afternoon. Cannot believe the national broadcaster would even consider giving up its rugby league coverage. It's the guppy brain decision of the year.
0: (laughs) What an insult. Beautiful. Um, Let me ask you this question. How many headlines do you think have had the words ABC and lost the plot in them over the years?
1: (laughs) But there there was a last-minute intervention and, and, you know, rugby league was saved on the radio to fill the TV breach. Channel nine started showing a Saturday afternoon match on delay, of course. Like I, I can understand the you know the ratings powerhouse of Burke's backyard on a Friday night. But like <laughs> what was stopping them from playing like a live match on a Saturday afternoon?
0: Who dares wins what
1: <laughs> And the other issue is that Channel Nine could play it, but there's you know individual regional stations across the country. And it's their decision whether they want to air the, the football or put something else on. So Alice Springs was used as an example of they had, through the ABC Saturday afternoon, there was regular free-to-air coverage of rugby league. Once the ABC dropped it and Channel 9 took over, Channel 9 in Alice Springs declined to play rugby league. And so suddenly a whole segment of the population lost their access to free-to-air rugby league.
0: Everything was so precarious back
1: then. Mm. And, like, Channel 9's decision to bury rugby league in non-rugby league areas, it's entirely reasonable as a business decision. Like, if it rated, they'd show it. You know, it's not some grand conspiracy to, you know, ruin rugby league. But for Channel 9 to then act like saviors, like, it's so disingenuous.
0: Yeah, this, um... It's fine for saying, well, it doesn't rate, we're not going to show it, but, um but here we are the keepers of the code the the rugby league heart
1: yeah like do you remember it was probably a decade or so ago like there was talk of channel 9 losing the rights and there was actually an ad about it and it was like narrated by ray warren it was saying like you know in in our game we can't forget the past and all those moments and it was like this flowery like long-winded <laughs> you know like talk about the the relationship between the game and and channel 9 and it's, it's just, like, how many examples do you want in, in the last 30 years to, to show you that Channel 9 are not friends of rugby league?
0: <laughs> Come on, guys. Let's, let's sign this <laughs> up again for another 10 years where we can hump the dead corpse of the game you love.
1: So, free-to-wear, even though the the ratings weren't terrible, they weren't going great, particularly on Sunday afternoons. So, the Sunday ratings which was, of course, the, you know, the trim-down one-hour highlights package, 42 minutes of football, I, I think it was, that you got to see on a Sunday night. <laughs> that was getting killed in the ratings. So where a, a few years before, it would regularly make the top 10. Uh, one week in 1996, that program came 47th for the week. And it was... It was viewed as particularly bad because the Sunday night replay was regularly getting beaten by the flashy girl from Flushing, Fran Drescher on The Nanny.
0: Well, I commend that because that's one of the great multicam sitcoms of the year with um, Fran Drescher in her lovely voice (laughs) and um, mini mini skirts, Mr. Sheffield, etc.
1: It's less embarrassing than losing out to ALF. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I can't condone a 42 minute um, package <laughs> of football Considering the game goes for 80
1: <laughs> But yeah, so there were, there are a lot of reports of rugby league fans Switching to the nanny in droves Was the exact quote The Friday night match was one week beaten by Channel 7's airing of uh, the detective drama A Touch of Frost <laughs> <laughs>
0: Some of the TV shows mentioned the series are
1: hysterical. (laughs) So there was a real staleness to the coverage of Rugby League on Sundays. Maybe it was the 42 minutes, maybe it was something else. It was the 42 minutes. But anyway, ratings were in the toilet. Something had to be done. So they decided to bring back Monday Night Football. One article talking about the return of Monday Night Football, this was another mascot column in the Sydney Morning Herald, said, Ken Arthurson points out that the switch from Sunday to Monday will mean more league on free to air in Sydney because it won't be edited highlights. Which, which is just, you know, said by Ken Arthurson as this, you know, great thing. But it, it just shows you how in the pocket of nine they were. You know, you can't demand better coverage. It's like, well, what works for you? Will you play a full game if, if we move it to Monday night?
0: It's absolutely embarrassing. I mean, um, Channel 1 was treating him like CC Babcock. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I'm never a fan of the Nanny, personally, i got to say.
0: Great multi <laughs> Uh
1: But so Monday Night Football w- was introduced in July and it was going to run through uh, the rest of the season. So that first match was Brisbane versus the Roosters at the SFS, which I was actually there for. Really? Yeah. And, and it, at the time, it just felt like something cool and big and important. Mm. Like, you know, my dad didn't, you know, often take you know, me and my brother to non-Dragons games. So this was a kind of a big thing, it was like Monday night we're going to the footy, it's at the footy stadium, the Dragons aren't playing you know, like, what's going on? And then to have 35,000 people there.
0: That's cool, yeah.
1: And then the match, do you remember that match? Do you have any memories of it?
0: No, I don't know. I remember loving the idea of Monday Night Football, thinking it's a, it's a no-brainer, the NFL does it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then by the end of it, I'm thinking, geez, I hate Monday Night Football.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it kind of held up for all of 1996. So Yeah, it did, yeah. So that first game got 35,000. The rest averaged over 25,000, so...
0: I mean, considering what they get in weekend crowds, I mean, what what is what are they doing on the weekends? It's so amazing! Like,
1: it's funny, isn't it? But it it was it was just a real different landscape where, for whatever reason, it was just this cool concept that people would turn up for. And yeah, and, and you know, because the the season wasn't scheduled a year in advance, then they could cherry pick and make the the best games of the week on Monday night. So you had like top of the table clashes almost every week of the, I think it was eight games on Monday nights they had that season. But yeah, a really strong start. So it, it was 10-all until late in the game. And then Andrew G, the Broncos had a 20-meter tap. And the rule at the time, you had to put the ball on the ground and tap it. And I think he just... I remember that. And and again, at the game, it was just thinking we were like, oh, he's going to be remembered for that his whole career. I just thought... it. it I gave it this outsized importance because... You know, like when you're there with 35,000 people and it's this really exciting game, it, it feels important, you know.
0: But what's better than a full Sydney football stadium as well? Like almost full, yeah, beautiful yeah. ground. But yeah, totally. I, I couldn't have happened to a nicer bloke given that the outright brushing of me and Shepherd's Bush walkabout <laughs> not five years later. <laughs> Suck at entry, G.
1: Yep, calm as a bitch. Um, so it was br- brought in as an attempt to, you know, arrest the slide in ratings. And. The concept worked, you know, people were excited about it. Crowds were good, ratings were good. Again, a Channel 9 issue was that they would only play it in rugby league markets. So in some non-rugby league cities, it was, you know, being played at like 12.45 a.m.,
0: well, we've spoken to a lot of our listeners that are from out of state talking about their horror stories of trying to watch *Rapunzel*. Yeah.
1: But when I, I'm sure Channel Nine were when *The Sopranos* started, I'm sure they were like airing that at like eleven thirty some weeks, and it had just changed time every week. Like,
0: no, no, what they were doing was um, advertising it uh, all through the week, and then you'd be all excited to watch it because it was the greatest show on television, and then you would wait for it, and then something else would be on yeah. with no explanation. <laughs> That was Channel, Channel I was treating Sopranos fans like rugby league fans.
1: <laughs> but so regardless of Channel Nine's failings, it did work. It got people excited. It wasn't unanimously approved of, so a lot of people missed their Sunday afternoon footy. Rex Mossop was one who said, I think Channel 9 are doing the wrong thing by the league, and I don't think they're addressing the problem of failing attendances. They're an arrogant bloody crew. There's no doubt about it.
0: Well, that's a very Rex yeah. Mossop comment, isn't it, really?
1: And speaking of Rex Mossop... The return of Monday Night Football led to a lot of nostalgia about one of the hallmarks of the first incarnation of Monday Night Football, which ran from 1985 to 1987, which was Whacker the Emu. <laughs> so uh, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll let Rex tell the story of Whacker the Emu. Whacker was a product of the 10 publicity department. A bloke would climb into this ridiculous emu suit and cavort around the sidelines during Monday Night Football. <laughs> I had nothing against the poor bastard in the suit, but the whole idea of the emu ran deeply against my grain. I swear that if I'd had a shotgun with me in the commentary box, I would have shot stupid bloody wacker stone dead.
0: Everybody that's not him is a poor bastard. It's the
1: best. Uh, And John Quayle was actually asked whether Wacker would be returning uh, for Monday Night Football's return, and he said, I think he's on IMG's books. He's asked for more money than we can afford. <laughs>
0: Good humour, um, Quail.
1: I know. Like it, it's it's really come out at a few points in this story, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, he sees the absurdity in this war.
1: But the the thing about Wacker is, it, it's interesting in the wider context of Monday Night Football, how it worked in the 80s and how it worked in this incarnation in the mid-90s, where the idea was to make it distinct, like it was its own thing, different to the rest of the competition. Uh, In an article in 2015, talking about the, the 80s version of Monday Night Football, Steve Mascord actually said, it wasn't just another day on which football was played. It was always at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Don Lane promoted it. It was marketed as a separate competition, almost.
0: I don't know how I feel about that.
1: I, I think I think it, it's smart, just as a point of difference, and and just
0: well, I like the idea of having like a, a top of the table clash in that slot, whatever. Um, but this, you know, it's a separate competition. Uh, length There's a bit a bridge too far for mine.
1: Well, it's just more in the way that it's marketed, where it's it's kind of packaged and marketed very different to. The, the standard rugby league coverage.
0: That's what I mean. It's like, well, what about the rest of the seven games? Like, you
1: know. Well, it kind of loses its effect when you think about the things that are being brought in at the games. You know, you've got like, you know, fireworks and live music and, you know, these kinds of things happening, which weren't happening at other games. I, th- I think if you, if you did that at every game, it wouldn't be as effective.
0: Right. I mean, this is the era when everyone's going clambering. We have to get an annoying MC... That's what, that's what the people yeah. want. Get them in. Um, how do you think Rex Mossett would have reacted to E-squared? Uh,
1: I I've, I know exactly how he would have reacted. I've got some quotes on, <laughs> on the subject. So so when he was talking about Monday Night Football in the 80s, Rex said, 10 executives set too much faith in the power of razzmatazz, of style over substance. I fell out repeatedly with the executives over their insistence on polluting the football telecast." With such American style gimmicks as dancing girls, appearances by the station soap, opera stars, and most of all, of the Emu. <laughs> and, and his disdain for, for Monday night football was extended to the entertainment around grand final day. He said, I can barely contain myself when the sides that have made it to the biggest game of the year burst onto the field on grand final day. Why should they have to play second fiddle to some TV warbler or an oversized koala bear in a digger's hat? <laughs>
0: I don't agree with Rex. What's funny is him saying he fell out with the TV execs over this (laughs) like it wasn't everything else as well.
1: (laughs) But I think, like, yes, I can see where you and Rex are coming from, but I think especially at this point in time, something needed to be done. Like, some point of difference had to be brought in. And the fact is, it was a winner. You know, like, the proof's in the pudding. 25,000 people a game, you know, throughout 1996.
0: No, definitely, but it's there's always a limit and they always take it too far.
1: Yeah, but I don't think they did in this instance. So I think it was really smart. They they brought like an events company in to like market each game as its own distinct thing. Like the, the one I went to, that Brisbane versus Roosters game, like they had the Angels playing and then at halftime they had this guitar challenge where I think they had like, you know, Fifty or sixty guitarists on stage playing "Smoke on the Water," like which sounds really naff now, but like it was just something that you weren't seeing at the football then. And and it was
0: well, the, like like you said, the proof's in the pudding. Everyone else is losing people, and they're getting twenty five thousand.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting in a Super League context where this is like the exact sort of thing that was being talked about. Like that, going to a game becomes an event. You know, it's not just. Going, standing on the the hill with a pie and watching the footy, it's it's like you know it's it's its own form of entertainment. You know, it was like like showcasing it as a, a piece of entertainment, not just a sporting contest.
0: So, like like you said, that Super League's pitch, right? And then the ARL seeing the success of Monday Night Football, how do they refute that then? Saying, "Don't go for Super League, stay with us." It's like Super League wants to do it every game.
1: Yeah, well, again, like, the ARL never had a problem with the concept of Super League.
0: The old stealing the game from underneath them, rubbed in the wrong way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so the the promoter who was looking after the Monday Night Football was asked about the the comparison of Super League and just said, well, it's a coincidence. He said, I think you've just got to have new ideas. You put a band on, you have some sort of other promotion. You give people a reason to go and a reason to talk about it.
0: As we sit here today and seeing, that you know, We've been through all this. We've been through East Square. We've been through the whole lot. I, I, I still, I still feel today that football should be the centerpiece, and then try and add auxiliary uh, functions around that. So you know, if you've got Wi-Fi, you've got stats, you've got this, you know, enhance the football. I just don't think. I think Rex is on the right track with dancing girls. Yeah, you know, only go so far, style over substance.
1: Yeah, I think that's a. a- like really valid point overall but the the point is you have to put it in the context of 1996 and it was we heard about the horrific crowds all season to be able mm. to go from that to these 25,000 plus crowds on a monday night it's a pretty amazing effort yeah but i think it's probably something that always had limited staying power i I'm mentioning for the you know third or fourth time in this episode but in an article In 1996, talking about the return of Monday night football, Steve Mascord said, they say things go in cycles, you know, and he was referencing the earlier incarnation of of Monday night football. That went away. This era of Monday night football went away. Channel 9 had a, a very substantial role to play in that by A, signing up with Super League for 1997, prioritizing Super League Monday nights, and then not playing those games live in favour of water rats.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't blame Channel Live for prioritising Colin Friels over uh, Darren Lockyer.
1: (laughs) Meaning that Monday Night Football now became like something that took place at 9.30pm. That was horrific. So it killed the concept then. Then it came back and it just became so stale so quickly. So I think if you're going to do it, you have to commit in a way that they did here in 1996. So that's why I think marketing it as its own distinct thing is the only way you can kind of make something like that work. But as, as it turns out, I, I think like it's a different landscape now. And the crowds aren't particularly, you know, great all the time for the Thursday night games. But I think TV wise, it, it's. It works much better on a Thursday night than it does a Monday night.
0: Well, it, it, that fatigue of waiting for Monday for the round to be over, that that just got to everybody in the end. But yeah, can we just talk about Channel 9 for one more piece of this episode? What did they want the rights for in the end? Just just, just, just yeah. to piss fight about with them? I mean, why why fight for the rights so hard so you can put them on for 42 minutes and 9.30 on a Monday? Like, it's insane.
1: It, it, you just, like, everything with Kerry Packer seems to come down to dick swinging
0: bizarre man
1: mm. but that's where we end this episode so uh you know monday night football bringing a you know small ray of light on a, on a pretty dark year for rugby league we're going to be back with part two where we're going to look more closely at the on-field action and and go through what the more i've researched the more i've looked at it it was actually like a, a pretty fun season in, in a lot of ways so you can stay tuned for that next week um catch up on it on any old 96 games you can we've talked about it before but the thing it's called sea eagles fan has the season review on youtube which is about three hours of of edited news highlights which which is a brilliant resource very cool um so get on top of that uh, and let us know what you thought about season 1996 and on that note we will get out of here and speak to you soon
0: take care